Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Let's back up. And where I went to was even because, you know, he, he was a technology person, of course. And he said, well, people should just be logical and they should just come to the website and they should say, I need this and I need this and I need this and I will buy. And I said, no one ever buys based on logic. No one. It's all about the emotions. And, and I said, they want the sales rep is there to hold their hand and to say, hey. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jen Grant. Jen, thanks for doing this. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you've done a lot of exciting things in life. Why don't you start with what you're doing right now, and then let's do a little bit of a let's do a little bit of an overview of how you got here. Yeah. So currently, I'm the CEO of a company called Epify. So we are, you know, on the bold mission to really uh, change people's perception about what you can do with enterprise software that it doesn't have to take six months or nine months or a year to deploy software, that you can very quickly create an app for an employee or create an app for a customer. And and it doesn't have to be painful. And so what we are is an enterprise no-code platform that sits on top of a business's existing systems and then makes it you know very simple to say, we need an app for the marketing department. We need an app for the sales department. We need an app for the IT folks. So all of that is is kind of the mission that we're on is to make work easier and more efficient and give everyone in your business the tools to, you know, happily get their job done. Oh, I love it. Well, as a, you know, I, I my listeners know this, but I took the uh, non-traditional route to finance. I'm an art school dropout. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so as an art school dropout, I really appreciate everybody who does something no code, you know, like what Squarespace yeah. <laughs> and Wix and those people have done for websites and yes. Webflow, you know, it's it's just like such a crazy acceleration factor for no code to exist. So I definitely want to talk about that a bunch today. But you were around for some pretty big accomplishments with Google and Box and some other folks. Can you can you hit a few of those highlights? 
Totally. It's, it's been a wild career when you think, you know, you kind of look back 20 years and you realize, oh my goodness, a lot of things were different back then. So when I was at Google, I actually joined right after Google's IPO, which feels like ancient days. And I, I was lucky to work on a product called Google Book Search. So it was right in the center of, you know, some people might remember, some people weren't born yet. <laughs> when Google decided they were going to scan every book in the world, they were going to make it searchable on Google. And it was an amazing experience. It was, it was, there was a lot of passion. There was, there's a mission behind that particular product that I think, you know, many people could really get into and understand like, wow, if you could, in a Google search bar, ask a question that can only be answered by a book in uh, Harvard's library. And, you know, maybe you live in Europe, like that's amazing. So, so that was kind of the beginning, this crazy wild ride I was on. There was lots of crisis management. The authors weren't so sure that this was the right thing. The publishers weren't so sure this was the right thing, but I learned a ton about communicating and, and explaining a big vision in a simple way so that everybody could get on board. So that was the beginning of, you know, I had done fun things before that, but that really was the beginning of, of my wild journey as a tech executive. And then after that, I was at Box. I, I joined Box when it was about 30 people. So it was kind of a bunch of kids running around <laughs> on a couple floors of a tiny little office. And, and that was, was wonderful. So if you ever get a chance to see Aaron Levy, the CEO, speak, he's very charismatic. He's super inspiring. He kept us going. We had you know tons of fun stories about early days. And then, of course, that one we grew up until uh, the IPO. So that was sort of the, the early stage company that I joined. And then I, I joined a company called Elastic for a little bit. I helped them with their brand and I helped them hire their team. And then I jumped to Looker, which was another wild ride. So Looker is uh, data analytics and uh, business intelligence. And I joined at about 120 people right at the beginning of the growth stage where we grew, grew, grew. And then uh, we're acquired by Google for, I think that was a year and a half ago, acquired by Google. So that was sort of what got me here. And at that point I said, okay, I have been a CMO for enough time. And I'm ready to do something more. I'm ready to take on a, a bigger role. And met Hari, who's the founder of Appify, fell in love with the product, fell in love with the vision. I've always loved making people's daily lives more efficient. That was part of what Box was about. It's certainly part of what Looker was about. And then obviously Appify is, continues to be about how, how can we go to work every day and have a great experience and not get frustrated with the tools that we're given. So yeah, so here I am. CEO. It's been a year. Best year to be a CEO is 2020. <laughs> yeah. Listen, it can only go up from here. You really, you've set the bar low. You've, you've really like, you've really done well. You know what I mean? It's like, well, things have sure improved, things have sure improved around here. I know. That's right. Yeah. We can actually see each other in person now. Um, well, not quite yet, but almost. Well, th these are some pretty incredible mile markers. You know, I think, you know, was it Looker sold to Google for like 2.6 billion? Does that sound right? Yeah, it was a huge deal. It was one of the biggest that Google Cloud had ever done. So yeah. we were we were really excited about that. And and the Box IPO, was that like 1.7 billion? Is that what the IPO? Yep, 1.7 billion and they're still going strong as a public company. Yeah, it's a yeah. 
amazing story. I think one of the things that I would love to start with is, you know, watching some of your other interviews, you talked about your time at Google and like all of a sudden being in charge of all these consumer facing things, you know, the Gmail and the folks that people are probably pretty familiar with. And this idea of, and, and I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it was something along the lines of sitting down with these folks and going, yeah, but what's in it for me, the consumer? Like, great. It does all yeah. this stuff. Why do I care? Can, can you explain? Yes. <laughs> can you explain the process of helping people articulate that when it's so obvious to them that they can't even say it concisely? Yes. And, and I think this is so important because I think the all of technology, I, I was about to say Silicon Valley, but now everybody's moving out into other cities. So it's all over. We have a tendency to get so excited about the the bits and bytes and the technology and like, look at this cool thing I created and forget that you actually created it for someone and that someone needs to understand why they should care. And certainly that was what Google was all about. We, we had so many apps that my team supported that don't even exist anymore. Picasa was one of them, although I believe that's still around. There was a, an RSS reader product that I forget the name of. There was just tons of different things that, it, that wonderful, really smart engineers had created and then said, okay, here you go. Tell, tell someone. <laughs> and I think, you know, for the product marketing, which was the role that I was in, that was our challenge was to take these really, you know, interesting technology or features and and be able to step back and say, okay, if I use this feature, how will it make my life better? And being able to step into the 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 shoes of the person that you want to actually use the product. I think, you know, one example is is ironically, we actually were spending time marketing Gmail because at the time it was not the number one. And and thinking about, well, what is it about Gmail that makes it better than other email? And of course, we've all been using Gmail, so we forget what it means to be you know, a user of a different product. So stepping back and saying, oh, right, I don't think about spam anymore. I don't think about managing my inbox. I don't put things in folders. I don't need to do all these other th- these things that I used to do. And then stepping back and saying, okay, how do we tell someone who's using some other product these benefits? Like, why does it make sense to them? Why would it help their lives? And so that's the, that's the kind of process is the stepping in the shoes and saying, oh, you would have more time if you didn't have to, you know, way back when we had to delete every spam that came through. And so we had, in that case, we actually created a whole marketing campaign about you know, what you could spend that free time on. Instead of deleting spam, you could. And we had some fun things like you could floss your teeth or you could <laughs> brush your hair, you could eat an ice cream cone or, you know, and, but that was the kind of process is that stepping in the shoes of the person who you want to use the product and what is it they will get that will matter to them when they use this really cool technological innovation. So I think about a challenge, I'll call it a challenging experience. A challenging experience I went through recently, our media company, we are helping some incredibly intelligent folks who are kind of world leading thinkers on, on certain research and, and data. And they could tell me the data inside out, upside down and backwards. And they knew all mm. the facts, but it was really a challenge to get them to think from the consumer's perspective of why they should care about the fact or like yeah. coming up with use cases of what, what decision will I now make different for our multi-billion dollar portfolio? Because you just told me that 
was a little bit like pulling teeth. What, mm -hmm. what kind of principles be, be my therapist here? Give me some principles on how I can do that better next time. <laughs> you mean communicate to them? Yeah. To help them what understand? The, what are the questions to ask them? What are the, yeah. how can I help them? How can I help them more quickly with, with exactly what you were helping people with at Gmail? Yeah. Yeah. I, so my experience has been, because I've done it in almost every company I've been at, I'd say the only company that the product was simple to understand was Box. It was, you could upload files, they were online. This is great. You know, and it was more like expand on that. But at Looker, for example, when I first got there, they used to say, you know, a Looker is a semantic layer that creates a data model that allows for you to create dashboards. And it's like, what? <laughs> does that mean? Why do I care? And so it, I, it didn't, it didn't happen overnight, but in the first couple of weeks that I joined, I would meet with different people. So I would start with the engineer and then I started meeting with uh, a sales engineer. So someone who had actually had to speak to a customer and explain it and just keep asking. So how does someone use this product? What do they do? Do they click here? Do they, and then what does it give them back? And so, you know, and in particular, I think an, an analogous to what to your situation is oftentimes, certainly at Looker, you know, you would, so many people would be like, look at this great chart. Isn't it amazing? And I would always ask my team like, okay, great. You just gave me five charts. What are they saying to me? What is, what is the takeaway? If I look at this chart and I go, okay, it's going up. Okay, what does that mean? Is it good that it's going up? Is it bad? Does it mean we're on track? Does it mean we're behind? Is there a goal? Is there a percent increase that's accelerating or decelerating? There, there has to be something that we take from that, that then we can have action and do something about. And I think oftentimes, and this is where the analogy hopefully is, is useful, is, you know, data people are like, but the data is beautiful. <laughs> Okay, but what am I going to do with it? How will it change my behavior? Does it say, don't change your behavior because you're doing the right thing? Does it say, you know, you're not doing it all the right thing and you need to start testing new? You know, what is actually it saying to you? And I think that's that's been sort of my process is that questioning exactly how would someone use this and exactly what would they get? And then what action will they take in their lives that will be different? Yeah, so hopefully that helps. Yeah. <laughs> So question, what would you like guesstimate Looker's market cap would have been when you started, you know, valuation wise? Oh my goodness. Just, just wild guess. Oh, tiny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would say we started, it was about 120 employees and I would say, you know, maybe I feel like we had just done a, done a series B. So maybe we were in the 30 million range, yeah. 30 to 40 million. That sounds about you know, what a, what a good series B might look like. It could have been more than that, but <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. That would be my guess. Cause I just want to talk about the drama here of, I mean, I know, we, you know, set up the elastic team that later goes public for 2.4 billion. There's always big numbers around here, but this rise right. from let's call it 30 million to, to 2.6 yeah. billion. Right. My experience. Mm -hmm. So I'll back up a little. I feel like I've been a sales guy my whole life. I got my first sales job when I was 15, you know, even as, you know, CEO of a private equity fund, I still like, feel still like, I still feel like I'm just top sales guy, right? Well, about yeah. 10 years ago, I realized like, wow, if I was any good at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so I became this like closet marketing nerd. So many books, 
going to conferences, interview everybody I can. Now we do the show. I have lots of CMOs or like, you know, the talk marketing agency that ramped up Peloton or this or that. Okay. Right. And then our consulting side, we've had a number of CEOs of marketing agencies as clients. And I feel like I should be paying them because I get to learn what they do. <laughs> but, but my experience has been, there's a lot of CMOs who they take over an already $2.6 billion company. And there's a lot mm. of, there's a lot of feelings and we're talking about brand a lot. And there's a lot of, yeah. uh, there's a lot of meetings where we decide which meeting we're going to have before the meeting and some of this kind of stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about likes and, and, you know, brand engagement and not a lot of talk about revenue. Okay. Right. And then I find those folks who are like, they're like legion. Like they're like, uh, this has to actually make money. And what I'm interested about is this idea of, you know, starting with a $30 million company, the marketing actually has to work in like a highly tangible fashion yes. to get to $2.6 billion. And, and what was that span of time? When, when did you start? I believe it was about five years. Okay. I, think, I think that would be the span. Yeah. Okay. So my question for you is, is my assumption right that early on, this is like extremely results oriented? And that later you get more of a luxury to do s some more brand stuff. Do you see it differently? How did you keep results oriented even when you have enormous budgets? Can you talk about this? Yes. No, I think it's, it's an excellent question. And I think there's a little bit of it depends. So, okay. And the reason I say that is because I have been very lucky to have been at companies that actually have a different go-to-market. So when you look at, at Looker, obviously it's very data-driven. So we were incredibly data-driven at Looker. So our marketing was very much from the beginning numbers oriented. So very demand gen. We were doing this many activities. We had charts up the wazoo that would show this converted to this, this converted to that. And, and it does in that case, I mean, I highly recommend that kind of scenario for any marketing team is then you have not only you have this wonderful feeling of like, I know what's going on, but you also have a great relationship with your sales team because everybody knows what's going on. So if there's an issue in marketing, it's in the data. It's not emotional. It just is. And if there's an issue in sales, it's in the data and it's not, you know, your fault or not your fault or whatever. It's, hey, let's go fix that. So Looker was very much about the data. And I would say on the flip side in the earlier days, and partly this is because the tools for tracking all these things weren't as you know, this is like 2008 to 2000 to 2010 timeframe. There weren't as many tools for, for having as much data. And, and in addition, Box had this wonderful advantage of having this charismatic CEO. So our initial strategy at Box was much more about speaking about our mission, talking about how we were going, you know, after SharePoint, we, we were, it was 2009, we were in the middle of a recession Aaron comes running in the room. He's like, we can get a billboard for $9,000. Let's pool our salary and we'll get a billboard and we'll put the logo on it. <laughs> we were like, what? <laughs> but the thing about Aaron that's so wonderful is that there's always something important about his idea that if you step back and go, okay, but wait a minute, a $9,000 billboard, that's a pretty good price. <laughs> Because it was the middle of a recession. So a lot of companies were pulling out. The billboards were, they didn't, they couldn't get anyone to buy them. And, and other than the, okay, let's not pull our salaries. <laughs> and stepping back and saying, well, what should we put on a billboard? Because the logo is not enough. 
And we had this great, we actually, at the time we were small, we had this all hands, we did a whole brainstorm and we came up with, I think what the core positioning of Box was from then on, which is Box versus SharePoint, sharing should be simple. And just to, just keep in mind that this is 2009. I think there's maybe 45 people at Box in this company. And we put a billboard on 101, uh, very near TechCrunch's headquarters, because we thought about that. And, you know, that so all those tech employees are driving by this billboard. Who is this Box company that's going after Microsoft? <laughs> So it was crazy, but it was effective because all of a sudden people knew who we are. They were like, how are you going to beat Microsoft? You're so small. And that's the conversation that Aaron wanted to have anyway, because prior to this billboard, everybody would have said, oh, online storage, you know, low margin. It's not very interesting, you know, blah, 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 backup, you know, (laughs) it's not sexy at all. So that was kind of, you know, when when you think about a big company, when they're talking about emotions and brand, I actually do agree with you. Sometimes it goes a little bit off the, you know, the meeting about the meeting and a little bit too much emotion, because at the end of the day, it's about being unique and interesting and so that people remember you. And there's some, you know, there's some wonderful large brands that are unique and you do remember. I mean, you know, we always like the the Geico commercials, like brilliant. You remember them, you know, and, you know, in the case of Geico, the great reason for that is it's boring. <laughs> it's a boring product. Well, but think about so the files, think about insurance, the, both boring. <laughs> think about the restraint though. Cause so many, so, yeah. so many of my art school friends that still wanted to do art and realized they weren't going to feed a family on that be, got into marketing. <laughs> do you mean, yeah. right? <laughs> And so think about the restraint and the discipline to keep saying yeah. uh, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more Yes, for no, years, 100%. for yes. years. I mean, think about yeah. the discipline at Coke to not change yeah. the logo every 18 months. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And to just like I burn 100%. that into our brain, right? <laughs> it takes restraint. Yeah, and- it takes discipline. And, and it takes, it takes, because I, you know, you're hundred percent right. I've been in so many companies and I even advise companies and there's always, usually it's the founder or the CEO who does not have a marketing background. who's like, Oh, that was what we did last month. Let's do something new. And, <laughs> you know, and, and one of the things that box did very, very well is sharing should be simple or, you know, it, it didn't change that much. I think it was, you know, box is simple, secure sharing that both it and and users love and adopt. And even though like maybe one or two of those words went in and out, they threw in collaboration, they threw in content management, they pulled it in, pulled it. It was still secure and simple. And every few months, someone in the company would say, aren't we bored with that? Shouldn't we do something else? You know, let's come up with something new. We need a new tagline. We need a new phrase. And, there, and a friend of mine would always say, you're always going to be more bored or faster. You'll be faster to be bored with your own marketing than anyone else because you're looking at it all the time. No one else is looking at it all the time. They've probably seen it once and there's millions of people and they need to see it seven times. So that's like, that's like six years of staying with the same thing. You can, you know, on the, you know, like a Geico, you can make it different. You can have a caveman and a gecko and, you know, whatever crazy other things they've done, but it's still that same core concept that they continuously burn into our brains. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Well, tell me this at 
at Appify now. Well, let's 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 do a little more of the value proposition to Appify, and then I've got a whole yeah. bunch of questions. Sure. Yeah. So I think the thing that that we're really excited about with Appify is there are a lot of no. I mean, no code has actually been around for a while. We just didn't always talk about it like that. Like Google Form is kind of like a no code app. Very simple. But it, you know, you made a form, people filled it out, you collected data. That's, that's so cool. And then, of course, like you had said earlier, Wix, Squarespace totally transformed how you can create a website so easily. So there's a lot of simple no-code app building platforms that allow you to do collect a little data, maybe a few charts. So really the positioning of Appify is that we want to be IT's choice. We want to be an enterprise grade no-code platform, largely because the advantage of Appify is that you can connect into existing systems. So if you have Oracle or SAP and you know most enterprises have some system that is fairly large and you know there's no there's no uh, technology person that will go, "Oh yeah, sure, let's rip that out and put in the next new thing." You know, they're going to keep it around for years because they invested millions in it and it has all their data. And why should they rip it out? And so that is where our positioning really comes into place is that not only are we enterprise secure, uh, scalable, all of that, but we can sit on top of these large systems and allow you to create apps. So all of a sudden, this tech stack that was fairly rigid that you weren't able to get, you know, more out of. And you're delivering apps easily that are user-friendly to, you know, folks in your organization. So one great example, we worked with a medical device company. So they have SAP and then they had some spreadsheets and then they had some paper. And so they would, you know, this is a Fortune 500 company, believe it or not. And they would go out to service these, you know, LASIK equipment, medical devices, and they'd write things on paper. Then they'd bring it back, put it in a spreadsheet and then they would try to chuck it into SAP to, so that it would be saved into the main system. And very easily, Appify can sit right on top of SAP. They can create an app. So now the person that's going to fix this piece of LASIK technology just pulls it up either on their phone or their tablet. They enter all the data. You know, here's what I fixed. Any Anything, take a picture of it, take a sound recording, you know, whatever. Because these are, you know, smartphones. They can do so many things. And then all of that data automatically goes back into SAP. And suddenly they've enhanced their SAP deployment. So instead of having to fix the core system, they just extended it. And, you know, the life of that SAP system is much longer now. So they don't need to think about massive projects to, you know, undo these large databases and ERP systems that they put in place. So that's that's basically our positioning is that enterprise grade no-code platform. So we make it easy, we connect into all the systems you have. Well, how genius to make it for the IT people instead of people having to go argue with the IT people, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's a really you spot on. And I think one of the issues that that I've seen, you know, I saw it at Looker, I saw it at Box. Like we thought SaaS and the cloud was going to change the world. Like it would make everything easier. You could have a SaaS app for everything, which is all true now. We have thousands of SaaS apps. And the problem is that now you've got an IT department that is responsible for the security of the enterprise, which means they need to know all of this software. And so every single data silo of a great SaaS app that's throughout the organization, they have to basically juggle that, manage it. Who are the users? Who has access? If someone leaves the company, how do I make sure all of their access points are 
removed? Do we have single sign-on? Is it secure? There's just so much to managing thousands of SaaS apps. And when you look at where no code is going, where it becomes so easy to create a mobile app, a desktop app with, you know, drag and drop functionality. Well, the next thing that's going to happen is another chaotic spread of no code apps all over an organization. So then everybody's building an app and, you know, that can only be a problem for a technology team in a company because now not just all the SaaS apps, now they have all these tiny little mobile apps everywhere with sources, you know, where is that data going and is it secure and can someone get in there and uh, no idea. And so that's where we really want to be the partner of IT to say, look, you can deliver all of this functionality to your organization, but you also should be able to manage it and be able to control it. And that many people will say, you know, my IT department doesn't have time to do my little project because they're, you know, they've got much bigger things that they're worried about. Okay, well now they they do have time. They have a they have a platform where they can just quickly build an app, solve your problem, let you know, off you go. And still get to maintain and, and know that that app exists in the organization. Yeah. Can you give us a couple more customer stories, use cases? You bet. So my favorite is we, I'd say this is around in the summer. There's a medical devices company in India. So it's called Tata MD. And they had basically gotten approval for a COVID-19 test. So it was CRISPR-based, it was effective, and immediately they wanted to create sort of the DoorDash for COVID testing. They wanted to be able to say, okay, let's do this, let's, you know, at your door, get the test, sample goes in, you know, and we deliver, deliver the answer on your phone. And what they realized, they had focused all their attention on the test itself and manufacturing the test and all of that. And then all of a the sudden, they, they knew they needed technology to support it. And so that was an amazing sort of moment for Appify because immediately we could say, here's five apps that you've got an app for your consumer, an app for the doctor, an app for the sample collector. And then all of this process of collecting the sample, bringing it back to the lab, testing it, collecting all of the data and a picture of the sample and barcodes and whatnot. And we were able to, in about five weeks, we were able to deliver that to Tata MD. And then they were able to start getting labs to produce their tests. And off they went to, you know, test as many people as they could. So that is my favorite story because it happened so fast. And it was such an example of timeliness, like the speed of being able to create something was so critical to bring it to market. Like we needed this functionality and we needed it right now. So that one was my favorite. I think some of the other ones are, you know, I mentioned medical devices. We also have a crane company. So they they rent large equipment, these huge cranes, and they have 14 different cranes. And there's a whole lot of safety stuff that they have to take care of. So if you put a, you know, if crane goes out on a construction site, they need to be constantly assessing, is that crane safe? And there's, you know, a checklist of 25 different things they need to know about each different model of crane. And of course, you know, they were doing it with paper and we sort of swept in and said, let's take care of this. So they created 14 different apps for each different crane. So if you have this crane, here's your assessment survey for making sure all of the security protocols and checks and things that you need to know about the crane are all there. And then on the flip side, it's a lot easier if a construction site says, hey, did you, when was the last time you checked on my crane and how is it? A lot easier to do that in a database than to start going through the filing cabinet for, oh, when was that last report that 
you know, that was filed for this particular crane at this particular site. So that's another example. And and what do you think that costs them to build those apps in, in fees yeah. they're paying you? Like what's their, I mean, not including their, their team's time. Yeah. I mean, I think from, from, you know, the way we charge, we charge by seat. So we look at, you know, we kind of have a base platform fee and then we charge by how many people are using the apps. So if you have, maybe you have someone in the back office, they're using the back office app, and then you have 25 people out in the field who are servicing, let's, in this case, we can say cranes. And so we, that's how we do our pricing is based on the the number of folks that are using the apps. But from a company perspective, you can create as many apps as you want. And that's, that's really where we see so much of the value of Appify is that this is a platform that doesn't just solve today's issue. It solves tomorrow's issue, which you probably don't know yet what the problem is going to be, but it will happen. And then you can create another app for whatever that might be. So like, I'm just on your pricing page, the $25 yeah. per user for the starter or the 45 per user. Is this for the people building it or is this for the people using it? Or is it for both those seats? It's for both those seats. So it's, it's the way we think about it is there's a platform f- sort of starter pack and the folks that are using the apps are, are the kind of these 25 per user per month folks, but the app builder, we don't charge more for, cause we figure that's sort of a necessary part of the platform. And then, you know, as you get more and more people in your company that are using these apps, then, you know, then your deployment grows, which we, we, you know, we happily will help you out. And then, you know, of course, there are a couple of companies where we're eventually going to be going to 500 or more. And then we start talking about discounts and large numbers and yeah, things yeah. like that. Well, the only reason I ask, you know, we had George Brooks from Crema on and they're like a real kind of like SWAT team swoop in and fix your screwed up app. Kind of like, right. you know, like you, <laughs> you've been got this silo where everybody's throwing stuff over the wall to the next people and nobody's actually talking to the customer, getting feedback, whatever. And like, yep. I mean, he talks about customers who are like, a year or two in, a million dollars spent and no working app yet. So when you're, yeah. when you're asking like $25 a person or $45 a person here, like <laughs> this is really like extremely reasonable from, from, from yeah. the stories. Like I know, I know all sorts when, of yeah, friends. When you think of the alternative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know so many friends that have a company with an app and it's, you know, it's 250,000 to start, but really the thing ended up being 900 grand or a million and a half, you know, like, yeah. There's a lot of like hidden cost of the actual development or deployment. I mean, we see there was, there's one customer we were talking to who said, just like you said, he said, I'm three years. I have a three-year deployment of Microsoft Dynamics is what he was working on. It's going to take us three years. We're six months in. We're probably six months behind. And so three years from now, I'm going to deliver a product that's three years old, that the innovation happened three years ago. And that's where we said, oh, you know, of course we were stick Appify on top of it. <laughs> that was our answer. Yeah. <laughs> stick Appify on top of it and create an app really quickly. <laughs> Interesting. You know, I think my next questions are, I'm fascinated with marketing led companies. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think if you don't have a good product, like you don't even get in the league, but like, <laughs> I, I just don't feel like good product wins the game. Like there's so yeah. many people I know with like, something superior that is not outselling the competition. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like yeah, having... they always talk about beta, beta max versus the VH. Right. That's literally the example. Quintessential example. Right. Yeah. But like you think about, it's not enough to be great. It's not enough to have a really, mm. really good product. 
People have to find yeah. out about it. People have to want it. You know, like we yeah. all know we should like go to the gym every morning and drink eight glasses of water. Like what percentage of us did but that do yesterday? We? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Right. Yes. <laughs> like knowing we should isn't even enough. Like, I don't know. I, I, I look at the research, you know, there's all these guys at Harvard that for 50 years were trying to promote the idea that humans are logical. And right. I'm sure it was very appealing to the researchers who wanted to think about themselves as logical. And then that right. book, I think it came out in like 97, Descartes' Error, where, and I can never say the guy's last name, but he he showed like in brain scans, like, hey, the lizard brain, you know, the amygdala, all these parts of the brain light up. If something gets past the traffic cop, eventually it goes to the neocortex, the frontal lobe, the like the logical, like the logic lawyer that's weighing everything back. But after that, yeah. before decision actually gets made, this other the part of the brain lit up. Nobody knew. And it's the limbic system yeah. where your emotions are housed. It's like you know, an idea oh God, it has to get brilliant. past the traffic cop, not seen as a threat. The logic lawyer has to agree with the logic, but that is not enough. The emotional yeah. judge ends up saying, like, hey, lawyer, in my head, you're driving me nuts arguing both sides of this case. Here's how I feel about that logic. <laughs> right? Yes. And yet, how many of us we we don't worry about kicking the tripwire from the traffic cop? We go straight to arguing <laughs> with the logic lawyer, forgetting if we don't create the emotional hook, the the yes. emotional judge is never gonna is never gonna rule in our favor, right? So yeah. yeah, to me, you know, you hear quotes from Phil Knight saying, and Nike is I'm gonna totally misquote him, but basically, like Nike's a giant marketing agency that sells shoes. You know, yeah, you like you look at Steve Jobs' obsessiveness. Yep. With, with marketing, you know what I mean? His product is great. Yeah. It genuinely is. And guess what? Everybody emotionally wants it. Even if a Samsung, yeah. like you can come up yeah. with a Samsung that is genuinely a better product, but the cool kids don't have it. So I don't want it. Do you know what <laughs> right. I mean? Right. Every, I'm going to get all sorts of emails from Samsung users now. But my point is this. <laughs> like, I love Android. <laughs> okay. But my point is this. Um, this. This idea of, this idea of somebody running the show who genuinely gets that in the bones, there have yeah. just been some exceptional success stories with that. So my question mm-hmm. for you is, you know, massive success at Google, Box goes public, set up the Elastic Team, you know, all, success after success here. Looker gets sold. Now you're doing it where you really do have the top job and you don't mm-hmm. have to convince the CEO to do it except for looking in the mirror. Right. So my question for you is, as you are ramping this up, what what kind of principles do you bring to the table? What kind of principles do you believe in for rapid expansion that that others listening yeah, today I, could could learn from? Definitely. Yeah. And I think your example is brilliant. I, I need to go read this book because I 100 percent agree. I think that the, what's interesting, what, you know, the examples you had, Nike, et cetera, Apple, these are all consumer products. And in the B2B space. I often hear and people often think, oh, well, you're selling to businesses, so you need to write really long sentences with multisyllabic words that sound really fancy. And, and so a lot of <laughs> where, where my value comes in, coming from a marketing background, is that, in fact, you are still selling to people and you are still selling to the emotions of people. I, I met a founder of, I won't say who it is, he's a very famous company. And they were trying to shift from B2C to B2B. And I didn't really know why I was meeting with a a VC friend of mine. I was like, go meet that guy. And I was like, okay. And I realized almost immediately why I was meeting this guy. Because he said, well, we have these events and they don't work. And I said, oh, okay. Who do you invite to the events? Well, you know, people who like to use our products. Okay. 
how many sales reps do you have that are talking to those people? You know, because you want to have a conversation. Oh, we we don't have very many sales reps. How many sales reps do you have? This is, you know, 500, 600 person company. I think we have like 10. And I was like, okay, so you just spent like $100,000 or probably more on this huge user conference and you have 10 sales reps? Like, how is that going to work? And he's like, well, I don't like sales. I don't like buying a car. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let's back up. And where I went to was even because, you know, he, he was a technology person, of course. And he said, well, people should just be logical and they should just come to the website and they should say, I need this and I need this and I need this and I will buy. And I said, no one ever buys based on logic. No one. It's all about the emotions. And, and I said, they want the sales rep is there to hold their hand and to say, hey, we're going to be here for you. When you go to your boss and say, I found the greatest product and I'm going to deploy it, this company will be there for you to make sure that you look good in front of your boss. Like that's part of the emotion. That's like, trust us. This is a good product. We are going to help you. We'll be there for you. And it's cool, you know, and so it's, it's, it's not, (laughs) it is a, like a, I don't know, it's like a infection in the technology world that there is, that logic is all that matters and that the emotion don't. So, I mean, I think from a, people should always be thinking about, I am selling to a human and what does that human, what are their wants and their needs? And usually in business, it's, they want to be successful. They want to get their job done faster. They want to, you know, become an innovator in their industry. They want to turn around and speak at a conference and be looked up to as like, wow, you, you know, you went with this new technology and you're so smart and like thinking about all those things in addition to the product. (laughs) Yeah. Can can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah. You know, thinking about your time at Box, having, Mm -hmm. having such a charismatic CEO that people do want to interview him and, and he does get speaking gigs. Can you talk about, I mean, there's probably not too many people that are that are that would uh, be surprised to hear, you know, Tesla's valuation is somewhat based on Elon Musk's exposure. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yes. part part of Virgin, part of the Virgin Group fame is because Richard Branson's really good Richard at getting himself awesome. on the front page, <laughs> right? Yeah. He calls it yeah. he calls it free ink, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> but but let's go back to Box. Can you talk yeah. about? The advantage of having high-profile experts as the senior leaders or or the CEO? Yeah. Huge advantage. And I think, actually, in contrast, when I was at Looker, the CEO, wonderful, but he didn't really want to be out there in front of the public. So that's that's where I finally was like, oh, that was the advantage of Aaron. Because what it ends up doing is it just builds on itself this like constant top of the funnel is what we call it. Like this awareness of like, oh, this innovative company box, this innovative company box. They may not even know what box does, but they've seen him speak. He says funny things. And then this comes back to the number of times people need to hear about you before they actually would buy something. So we had this wonderful flood of interest and awareness and because he was just Everybody wanted to write about him. And he, you know, and of course, the best part is my favorite moment is I think it was my second week at Box, way back in the beginning. The very first interview I set up, I I had set it up at nine in the morning and Aaron didn't show up. (laughs) And he was like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get up that early. I don't want to talk to the press. And I was like, what? (laughs) 
Now, of course, that all changed very quickly. Like he's, he, I think, I think maybe the next time I scheduled something, he got on the phone and he realized these reporters are interesting and they ask good questions and what they write is also interesting. And they're kind of, they're, they're helping you amplify your story and your mission and everything uh, that you have to say to the world. And so then he got totally into it, but it, it was not something, what's interesting is it was not something we had at Looker by choice. It was the CEO's choice not to really be that public figure. And so then you have to find something else. And in the case of Looker, we had uh, wildly happy customers. And so we were very much like we had, if you looked at the balance sheet, we put, we hired a lot more people to make customers successful than a typical SaaS startup of that size. And that investment was done because then all the customers would go on every review site and talk about how great Looker was and tell their friends. And so even though we didn't necessarily get that same press, we got the same conversations happening just from a different and, and pretty valid place as in a current customer. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess thinking about advice, for folks going, I don't know if I have the money for that kind of investment. It probably right. would be cheaper for me to be willing to be more public, for me to brush up on my public speaking skills and do some strategy about what what you know what's the hook point that is actually going to get the press to want to talk to me and like yeah and and just from a math standpoint of looking like okay we can buy ads at Forbes we could buy ads at Wall Street Journal or TechCrunch. Right. How much would an ad cost that gets seen by this many people or that goes to this many folks? Okay. Right. How many of those can I get for free by ha- having something that they want to talk to us about? And, and yes. being that, being that, being that person that helps them get their job done. Cause they need an interesting story. They need to have yes. something to bring to their boss. They need to have something that advertisers want to advertise against. Like I think about, do you know this Ryan holiday book? The obstacle is the way. I don't think I've seen it, but I'm familiar with Ryan Holiday. I don't think I've seen that it's, one, though. It's exceptional. I, I think, anyways, one of the best books written in the last decade. I, I've listened to maybe like 850 books on audio, and it's for yeah. sure top three for me. It, it's incredible. But he tells this story about George Clooney, who felt like, oh, nobody, he's he's struggling at, at not tryouts, that's for sports, auditions. Auditions, He's struggling yes. <laughs> at auditions. I know with your acting background, I need to correct me. So he's struggling <laughs> at auditions just like everybody else. And he has this epiphany. You know what? These people have a problem too. The, like I have this problem, nobody will pick me. But guess what? They have a problem. They need the right person for this job. And here right. are their other problems. Press, you know, promotion, all these other yeah. things. And he started showing up. This is what he says. He started showing up to these auditions going like, I am your guy. I will go the upteenth, you know, I will go the extra mile yeah. on promotion. I will do this. I like, I am here to serve you, not please pick me, please pick me, please pick me. Right. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden he becomes George Clooney that we know. Right. And so thinking about that, like, can I do a reporter a favor of having like doing something worth writing about? Do you know what yes. I mean? And yes, having something that. to make them look good to their boss, you know? Mm-hmm. No, a hundred percent. And I think that was, you know, I think Aaron did it naturally, but I think, you know, other, not everybody has just sort of naturally witty and coming up with interesting things to say, but I've even heard and, you know, that creating a relationship with a reporter and so that you give them information 
that maybe isn't about your company and maybe, you know, doesn't actually help you, but will help them because something is in the press that people are writing about like, Hey, you know, I, did you see this? And this might help you with that article that you're writing. Just sort of being the the friend being <laughs> of a, a resource is useful, right? Being like, a resource. Yeah. If you've got way more money than time, then maybe that mm-hmm. doesn't work. But you know, most folks in rapid <laughs> growth have more time than yes. money. Like when you really look at what it would cost, nobody has time. Everybody's yep. busy. But when you look at like, okay, <laughs> how much would that advertising cost? Or oh yeah, should we take some things off my plate and I become a resource to some Spend reporters? Some time. I investigate, yeah. you know, we have somebody on the team research everything else they're writing about and spend like genuine time yeah. on how can we match their tone and what they're looking for? How can I write yep. the book that gets attention? How can we how can yep. we do speeches at lower end things so that we can get the invite to the higher end thing? You know, like this mm-hmm. type of work that is not building a product, reviewing financials, like the CEO stuff, <laughs> right? Right. And yet yeah. and yet might be the biggest favor you can do for leads for your sales team and, and, you know, revenue generation for your investors. Right. Yeah. And I, and I do think it's a mistake. Often I hear founders where they don't, again, it actually goes back to where we started. It's standing in the shoes of the reporter and of their readers, because, you know, I've, I've spoken to founders that said, well, you know, I'm going to write about how cool our product is, or I want to talk about how cool our product is. And so get me that interview with the wall street journal. <laughs> That's not going to happen because nobody cares about how cool your product is. Like nobody. But they might care if you can position it in a way that says, hey, this thing is happening in the world and there are some interesting shifts in technology. And your readers will be very interested to understand how these shifts are happening. And by the way, it's my product. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, that's, that's not something that everyone sort of gets right away. They think, oh, well, PR, I just need to pay the PR firm enough so that they know someone at the Wall Street Journal that will write this, or they'll know someone at the New York Times or, you know, whatever it might be. Get me on Oprah. <laughs> Nobody can get on Oprah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you have to be royal to get on Oprah. But the, the, it's that kind of understanding that like you have to tell us, you have to stand in the shoes of the reporter and the reporter's reader to say, oh, let me tell a story that is a value to them that you want instead of the story that, you know, you as the CEO or founder think is the best that yeah. you might just talk about how great your product is. <laughs> well, you know, it makes me think this. You've been around for some rapid expansion, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody uses Gmail. Everybody uses Gmail. You know, <laughs> yeah. box, nothing to 1.7 billion. Elastic, you know, all this ramp up, these multi-billion dollar exits and sales and IPOs and stuff. And, and you've seen all these different stages. And now mm-hmm. you, you're having to do them for your... What's an observation? What's a commonality you see with these organizations yeah. you've been with that, that have this rocket ship, you know, unicorn status getting over the billion mark? What What's an observation for the rest of us? Yeah, I think so. And this is something you can take in an interview in should I invest in this company? You know, when you're looking at companies and saying, what has unicorn potential? For me, it's three things. It's the customer base. So in all cases, Box, Looker, Elastic, and also Appify, it's finding, you know, and of course, different sizes. So there are more customers at Looker when I started than there were at Appify, but they're finding those customers that are so enthusiastic about the product 
that they are already championing it. So they've already said, hey, friend, come see this product that I'm using. This is great. And so I look for that kind of validation from customers, but but validation to the step of champion, that they're that enthusiastic about it, that they're willing to sort of use their it. own social capital. Yeah, to say, I won't look like an idiot if I tell my friend to use this product. So that's a big piece of it. I think the second piece is that I always look for the, the team, the leadership team. So finding people, leaders who are self-reflective enough to not just think they know everything. To me, that's a big, big piece of it. There's a lot of, you know, folks, and, and there are a lot of folks who'll be successful and never listen to anyone ever, Elon Musk, in their lives. So yes, you can be successful that way, but that's not who I want to work for. So the for me, it's that executive team of the combination of charisma, like an Aaron Levy, experience like Frank from Looker, and the ability to step back and go, okay, what do I not know? And how do I build a team that fills in all of the experience so that we can sit around and, you know, we can debate strategy and we come out with a big, with a better strategy because we have more voices at the table. So that's the second piece. And then the third piece, and this one is a little more specific to me, is that I love platform products. I love the idea that, you know, at Box, it was content, but this was a platform for all of content across an organization or at Looker, it's a data platform in addition to just being BI, it can also be marketing analytics or sales analytics or customer analytics and kind of encapsulate the whole organization. And then, of course, Appify is a platform to sit on top of your tech stack and create apps. So there's just something about that to me that is so compelling because there's a lot of point solutions out there where a product solves one thing, which and, and many of these products will be very successful. But I find it so much more interesting when you just you don't just solve one thing. You can solve many different things for an organization. You have that sort of great upsell potential of, you know, these larger platform plays. That's great. Well, besides the number, they should go to Appify and check out the website, appify.com. I think my my favorite way to end interviews lately is asking what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received. Yeah, no, this was a good one. I have a really great executive coach who said, Jen, and I was upset because I was working with someone that, you know, they're not listening to me. And and she said, Jen, you got to lean back and you got to listen and you got to keep asking, hey, can you tell me more about that? Can you tell me more about that? I don't know if I totally agree, but I really want to understand what your position is and what you're saying and how you're thinking about this. And she said, and just keep asking, tell me more until you get to something that you can agree with, that you can go, oh, I see how you're thinking about this. I definitely agree with you there. And it's been very helpful throughout my career, especially when you get all riled up about something, you know, whether you're in a crisis or I disagree or that strategy is wrong to, to basically slow down and just say, tell me more. I'm really trying to understand your perspective. So there's my advice. <laughs> I like it. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations on all the success. It was my pleasure. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Okay, bye everyone.